Lord, thank you once again for all that you do in our lives. And thank you for the experiences you give us, God. And we see you move in the miracles you've done. We pray for the guys in, in Segura Prison, Lord. They're, they're, our, they're our own from Hawaii, Lord. And we pray that you touch and bless them and just continue to just pour out your spirit there and save more. I thank you for the warden who allowed all this to happen. Just amazing that. Uh, we will be able to do all this, but thank you for uh, just, I thank you, God, for letting me have a tiny part in being part of this team and uh, uh, going there. And now, Lord, as we get into your word, Lord, I pray you bless it, pray you teach us, I pray your spirit would move, and I pray for your anointing, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One young boy excitedly told his mother what he had learned in Casey Church one Sunday. He told her this. Now, Mom, Pharaoh and his army chased the children of Israel all the way to the Red Sea and trapped them there. Then Moses, he called over the army to build this pontoon bridge, and the people crossed over to the other side during the night. But the next morning, the Egyptian army with the M1 tanks and troops went across the bridge. So Moses got on his walkie-talkie and radioed in an airstrike. And the Israel Air Force came with their F-16s, and they dropped bombs and destroyed the bridge, and the whole Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. Well, the mom was taken back a little bit and said, Is that really the way your Kiki Church teacher told you the story? And the boy replied, Well, not exactly, but to tell you the truth, if I told it the way she said, you would never believe it. I love that, yeah. Well, we all know the truth is that God did a powerful miracle that day when he parted the Red Sea. Well, as we get into and return to our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul looks into the powerful truth about the amazing miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And really, that's what this whole chapter is about. And so Paul, as he gets into this chapter and he speaks to the Corinthian believers, today we're going to see the truth about the resurrection. The truth about the resurrection. That's the title of our message, The Truth About the Resurrection. We're going to be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15 from verse 1 through 11 this morning. 1 through 11, we're going to take this first section. And I've broken this section into three parts, and this is our outline. Number one, the living evidence. Number two, the large eyewitnesses. And number three, the life-changing experience. So the truth about the resurrection, this is what Paul's getting into. Let's begin number one here, the living evidence. That's our outline heading. Number one, the living evidence evidence. All right, take a look with me here now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, verse 2, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. All right, we begin here with the Apostle Paul, and he says, moreover. And when he says that word, he's saying like, hey, let me go on now with this. Let me add this now. And with this, he starts really this new section, this new subject 
from what we have been studying before. And as we enter into here, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he begins here. Moreover, hey, uh, here's something else I want you guys to think about, brethren. He said, I declare to you the gospel. Now, when he says declare, it really means like I had made known to you. Or I like how the ESV renders this. The ESV says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So right off as we get into this section, Paul says, hey, remember the gospel that I shared with you? Remember what I gave to you? Remember when I started this church, came into this city of Corinth? Remember how I shared this gospel? So I shared this gospel with you. And what is this gospel? Well, he kind of unfolds it a little bit here. He says, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received. In other words, that gospel you remember that you had received, that you believed, that you put your faith on, that truth that I had given you. But you have received, verse 1, and in which you stand. And when he says stand, he's like, hey, remember the gospel I shared with you, that gospel in which you received and now you stand? In other words, where you're standing now. After you believe, now look at what God has done in your life. Where you're living as Christian believers, that's where you're standing now as believers. So Paul's saying, hey, remember the gospel I shared with you where you received and now where you're living in now as a Christian now. And then he says, and that gospel by which you are saved. Remember the gospel saved you, rescued you from the effects and consequences of our sin. That saved you from sin from saved you from the bondage of sin and death and then paul says if you hold fast that word in verse 2 which i preach to you he's saying remember the gospel i shared with you that gospel that does save you if you hold fast if you really believe it you know what it does to you it's where you stand now it's where you're living in if you really do believe then that's the truth that brings eternal life now at the end of verse 2, after saying all that, then Paul adds this. Notice there's this dash, and he says, unless you believe in vain. Well, Paul, what, what are you saying there? Paul's saying, hey, remember the gospel I shared with you. Remember how you received it, believed it, how, how that's, that's how you have eternal life now, that Satan rescued you from sin. That's the life you have now where you're living as a Christian now. That's that if you really hold fast and you believe it, unless this gospel never really was true in the first place. That's what he's saying now. Unless you have believed. Unless, unless, well, this gospel that I gave you wasn't really true in the first place. Paul's like, unless. Now, why, why would he say that? Why, this seems strange to me. Why, why would he say that? Unless the gospel is not true? After he said all this? We know it is, right? We know the gospel is true. Paul knows well, why is he saying it this way in verse 2? Well, you know why? He's challenging the hearts of the Corinthian believers. He's challenging them. He's saying, is this gospel really true then? You know how it saved you. You know how you believe then. You know where you stay right now. Yeah? You're saved. You're a Christian. You know what it's done for you. You know how it rescued you from sin. Well, unless it's not really true. Unless you believed in vain. Like, well, you believe like, like you really believe, but it wasn't true. See, 
Paul is challenging the Corinthian church because why? They were struggling. What have we been learning all this time from chapter 1, right? The Corinthian church, they were struggling. They were carnal. They were worldly in their ways. They were prideful, right? Remember early on in 1 Corinthians, they acted like they know everything. Yeah, And then they were prideful in that way. And they became critical, judging others because they thought they knew so much, right? And yet they were still worldly. And they were selfish in what we just studied in our last section. They're selfish in using their gifts for their own gain. And there was much division going on in the church because there was no agape love, 1 Corinthians 13. So Paul now, as he moves into this thought and, and going into the resurrection and what the resurrection means, he begins with the gospel. He goes, hey, uh, is the gospel really true? Unless you really believe like in something that wasn't true? See, Paul wants them to refocus their attention getting back to the gospel, getting back to the main thing, getting back to what's where it all started, getting back to center because spiritually they had drifted so much. Paul's saying, hey, you know, you guys, your life has changed. You know how the gospels come and, 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 and totally transformed you guys. You know how you believed in that and you got saved. But still, hey, you guys a little bit messed up. But so we need to look at this. Is it true? Yeah, it's true. Paul challenges them in who they are and what they believe and how they should Live, And that's where he's heading to. If the gospel's true, if we get back to basics here about the resurrection and all that, then that should affect your lives. And it should bring you out of this carnality, this selfishness, this pridefulness. It should show you what the gospel does. He's like, do you remember what the gospel is and what it does for the person who believes in it? Or maybe it doesn't. Barton said in his uh, commentary, he said, The truth never loses its power. People, however, often lose their grip on the truth. And that's exactly what's going on here with the Corinthian church. They know. They've been powerfully changed, yeah. But now they're drifting. Now they've gotten more worldly and carnal. And they've lost their grip on the truth. Sometimes we do that, yeah. We lose our grip on what the truth of God is and who we are, who He is, and what, what the gospel has done in our lives. And that's what Paul is getting into this now. That's what Paul is bringing their focus to the gospel, what Jesus has done. So, if you think about it this way, Paul's coming saying, hey, so is the gospel really real? Did you believe in vain, like it's nothing, like you're believing in something not true? Is the gospel real? Paul's like, it is real. This is the truth. It is true. So as he moves here, look at verse 3. This is the, that's that thought. Look at verse 3 now. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, here Paul is resetting their focus. He's bringing them back to the gospel. What does that mean? What's going on here? And in their as he resets their focus, he gives them a plain and concise definition of the gospel. Do you remember what the gospel means, that word? That means what? Good news, right. It means good news. So here Paul is saying, this is the gospel. This is the good news. And he brings it into the, a concise uh, a definition, in a sense, in verse 3 and 4. Now, 
When he begins here, I, for I delivered, I brought to you, first of all. When he says first of all, really the idea there is saying the most important thing is wh what I gave to you. And then he says, which I also received. I gave you what was most important. That was the gospel when I came. And that's because I received it. Paul's like, I didn't come up with this on my own. I didn't make this up. No, it was given to me. Paul's like saying, I'm not the maker of this. I'm not the inventor of the gospel. You know, him and uh, the other apostles were what? Messengers, right? They were repeaters of what was told them. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Yeah. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Paul's like, hey, I'm not the one who made this up. I, it was given to me. I received it to give out to you. So what is the gospel of Jesus? Well, first thing he writes is Christ died for our sins in verse 3. Christ died for our sins. Jesus died on the cross to make atonement for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. He is our substitute, right? He took our place. He, uh, that's called substitution. Yeah. When Christ hung on the cross there, he took our place. If you think about it, it's like back in Leviticus when we were studying that. We saw in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 29, the Jewish priests would lay their hands on the animal that was brought to them to be sacrificed on the altar back then. And he, the Jewish priests would lay their hands on the animal and they pray and that would transfer, transfer the sin of the people onto that sacrifice. Yeah. Transfer the sin and then the animal would die in place of the people for their sin. Well, that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He died for our sins. Jesus was perfect. He had no sin. He was the perfect lamb. No spot. No blemish. Right? He was perfect. He was God come from heaven. What did he die for? He died for our sin. He took our place upon the cross. He died as a substitute for us. And Paul says, hey, take note. This was done according to the scriptures, he says. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. Many scriptures in the Old Testament predicted what Jesus would do. Like Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of, of us all. He took upon our sin and died in our place. So Christ died for our sins. Then what's the next thing? The second thing here in verse 4. And that he was buried. So the second thing we see was Christ was buried. So in this concise uh, a saying of the gospel, we say first Christ died for our sins, and the second thing, Christ was buried. Jesus, we know, through the gospel, was, was put into a tomb, and it was sealed with a stone, right? And so why Paul is putting this in here? Well, Christ was buried, meaning that Jesus really died. He actually died for us. He was really died. He was really dead, I should say. You know, it's interesting how some try and explain away the resurrection of Jesus. There's uh, some who believe what is called the swoon theory. Swoon, swoon means like uh, to pass out, to faint. And so some people say, well, you know, Jesus really didn't die. He, he passed out from all the trauma that happened to his body, the, the scourging and hanging on the cross and all the 
loss of blood, the crown of thorns and the nails and all that. He actually just passed out from the trauma. And then when they placed him in this coolness of the tomb, revived him. So he really wasn't dead. That's called the swoon theory. And some people really believe that. I think it's crazy. I mean, no one can survive the Roman crucifixion, right? Uh, John 19, you know, tells us how, how Pilate, you know, asked the Roman soldiers, hey, uh, you got to take him down. You know, the Jewish guys, hey, the Sabbath's coming. So, uh, hey, these, these guys went and checked to make sure they were dead, yeah? The, the two thieves were already gone, and they went to, or, or they, they, they broke their legs, yeah? so that they would die. And then when they went to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And just to make sure, they poked him with the spear, right? And blood came out. I mean, the Roman soldiers, they were experts in crucifixions. They were experts in capital punishment. They, they, they knew when a person was dead. And even when Joseph from Arimathea, you know, in Matthew 27, took his body and put him in the tomb, you don't read nothing like Joseph going, hey, look, he's still breathing. You know, he's still breathing there. Oh, yeah, he's alive. We'll stick him in there anyway, you know, kind of thing. You know, no, Jesus was dead. And the truth is Jesus was buried because he really died. He did die for our sins. So Paul's like, hey, Christ, he died for our sins. And secondly, Christ is buried. Thirdly, we see here, right, in verse 4, and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And so Christ rose again the third day. He really died. But the powerful miracle and the truth is he really rose again from the dead. He was dead, dead, but he rose again. And now he's alive. Jesus was crucified and then buried on Friday before the Sabbath started at 6 p.m. And then he was in the tomb throughout Saturday. And then on Sunday, on that third day, the tomb was found empty. Jesus rose again on the third day. And that is significant, right? And we've learned this over and over in Easter, in our Easter messages, in our studies through the gospel, that for Jesus to rise again, it tells us that Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered yeah, paid for our sins. Yeah, we know he paid for it all. If not, he would still be dead. Without the resurrection, there would be no salvation at all. G.A. Sutter Kennedy wrote, If Christ be not risen, the dreadful consequences is not that death ends life, but that we are still in our sins. Without the resurrection, we'd still be lost. We'd still be tied to our sins. There would be no victory over sin and death. And so we see that this is the gospel, right? Number one, Christ died for our sins. Number two, Christ is buried. He really died. Number three, Christ rose again the third day. And Paul kind of says here at the end, he says that both, Christ being buried and rising again was done all according to the scriptures. And again, the many Old Testament scriptures that predict what was going to happen to the Messiah who came to this earth. The Son of God who came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the dead. Jesus himself said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of 
means. Did you know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies? His, and this was his first coming, coming to the earth, how he was born, dying on the cross, rising again. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. It's amazing, you guys. It was according to the scriptures. I remember Pastor Chuck always sharing about this renowned mathematics professor named Dr. Peter Stoner. And he had presented the probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight, just eight of the three over 300 Old Testament prophecies. prophecies. He said statistics, the probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight of the prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. One in 10 and 17 zeros. That's the probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight of them. But he did over 300. Uh, the professor would put it into perspective by saying, imagine the state of Texas being filled knee deep with silver dollars. And you take one of those silver dollars, mark an X in it, and, and throw it in there, mix it up in there, somewhere in the state of Texas, knee deep. And then you take a, a, a man, you blindfold him and, ha and let him loose. Have him wade through all these coins as big as the state of Texas, knee deep. And, and the probability of him to just reach out and the first coin he gets and pick it up and to be that one coin with a black X on it, that's the probability of 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Isn't that crazy? Now that's just, that's just eight of the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300. Wow, so when Paul writes according to the scriptures, that means amazing. <laughs> that means amazing. That means, wow, Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, the Son of God, who's come to die on a cross and rise again. Die for our sins, be buried, and rise again from the dead. So what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Number one, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Number two, Jesus was buried in the tomb. And number three, Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. Now, Paul's going to really focus in on this resurrection part. But right now, he just lays it out. Get your focus, you guys, on here. Get your focus on, on what you learned, what you believed in from the beginning of what Jesus did for us. You know, it's like Paul saying, he really lived you know, Kenneth Chesterton said, Paul reminded him that when the gospel is reduced to its essence, it is an event in history. And I love that because when we talk about the gospel, it's not just some philosophy here. Yeah, it's just not some idea here. No. God really did something here. God really did come down and sacrifice for us. So is the gospel real? Is it true? Yes. Jesus did die on the cross and rise again, as Scripture said. And the salvation of the Corinthian believers are living evidence to that truth. And that's really what Paul's bringing here together. Jesus did die on the cross, rise again, as Scripture said. And the salvation of the Corinthian believers are living evidence of the truth. And that, that's really Paul's point here. The gospel is real. What you believe in is real. I mean, look at yourself. You're living evidences of the salvation that you have 
now. On June 18, 1815, all of England looked to Winchester Cathedral for a signal to spell out the outcome of war with the, uh, that was with the military commander Duke Wellington and Napoleon back then. The message came, and it flashed, W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N-D-E-F-E-A-T-E-D, which is Wellington defeated, and right then this fog rolled in. And, and that was the message that the people saw, and, and their hearts sank. What? We lost the battle? But it wasn't true, because suddenly the fog lifted again, and the real message was seen. Wellington defeated the enemy. The Corinthian believers, see, they were living in a way that they only saw part of the message. They were living a defeated life in their carnality, in their pridefulness, in their selfishness. They were still living like in the flesh, though they were saved. Though their lives had been transformed, they were still giving in to the flesh. So Paul here warned them really to see through that fog. Hey, you're not just forgiven and saved here by the blood of Christ, but they should now be living that resurrected life, the resurrected life. That's why he's bringing them to, look, focus on the gospel again. Focus on what Christ did. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. The scripture said that's the truth. And your salvation, Corinthian believers, is living evidence of that truth. But now he's drawing them into, take that thought now and we're going to, move farther we're gonna go on with that he did die on cross and he rose again and you're living evidence of that truth but you shall now also be living that resurrected life are you living in a fog today of sin and flesh oh thinking that this is normal thinking that this is okay are you living in defeat you we got to get out of that fog you guys you know when when we went in this uh, past week into the prison and and you can see some guys and talking to different guys that they were really hurting they they wanted to get out they they were th- they understood their circumstances but they wanted that new life but then as Kelly and I were talking one day you know some of them they were in there because well they were proud of it oh yeah I got 20 years yeah that made them like uh, gave them status in that some guys they just accepted that well this is this is life this is the way and that's what really made me sad was yeah this is the consequences of their choices and their crime and their mistakes but some guys are like yeah yeah this is just normal this is life i thought how sad because there's something better than that on the outs right and that just made me sad that they would accept that that that's okay but I think sometimes we do the same. We think, oh, this carnal way of living, this way of le- living in defeat, oh, that's okay, that's every day. But no, no, we got to get out of that fog. Yeah, we, we've experienced what the gospel has done, but Paul's leading them on. Yeah, that's the truth. But hold on and, and go to the next part. That's the resurrection part. And that's what Paul is really leading up to. But understand, we're all, as you know Christ, we're living evidence of the truth. But there's more to that. Let's go on here now to number two in our outline, the large eyewitnesses. The large eyewitnesses. We've seen the living evidence, and Paul's going to be bringing out the truth about the resurrection. And here he comes to the large eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. 
and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. Now, Paul is bringing their attention and focus on the resurrection. And he just talked about Christ. He rose on the third day. He rose again, right? So he goes on here. Now Christ is risen. And the truth is that many have seen him in Jesus alive. And so he first begins with, Paul said, lift Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. That's right. Luke 24, 34 says, tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter. That he had this meeting, like face to face, just Jesus and Peter together. We don't know the details of what was said. Yet it must have been a special time of restoration and forgiveness for Peter was the one disciple that publicly denied Jesus three times, right? When Jesus was, after Jesus was arrested. Hey, I was thinking about this. If there's anyone Jesus should abandon, that's Peter. For Peter abandoned him. But Jesus didn't, right? Jesus met with Peter and specifically just with Peter him and i love that i love i picture that meeting i don't know what was said but i picture peter's tears i i picture jesus's love and reaching out to him cory ten boom once said there is not a pit of sin so deep whereas the love of god is deeper still amen to that where sin abounded grace abounded much more amen God's love is so huge. So just to see he was seen by Cephas says so much there, doesn't it? And then it says in verse 5, then by the 12. Now, we know Judas was one of the 12, but he went and betrayed Jesus and later, you know, committed suicide, hung himself. So there's 11. But it was, they were known as the 12 even after Jesus was gone. So, so Paul writes, hey, he was seen by the 12 disciples even after Peter. The 12 disciples saw Jesus alive, and we read those in Luke 24, Mark 16, and John 20. And I can imagine the fearful and discouraged disciples were supercharged after seeing Jesus was alive, just as he had told them. This is what I told you guys. I'm sure Jesus was telling them. In Luke 24, 7, uh, Jesus had predicted the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. They should have known that because Jesus told them. Then verse 6, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present but some have fallen asleep. So Paul's writing here, after Peter and the disciples saw Jesus, you know, and, and, and the team there that followed Jesus around, he said, after that, you know what? He was seen by over 500 people of whom the greater part remain. In other words, they're still around. But he's saying, in other words, go, go ask them. Go ask them. You know, they're still around. Those who have fallen asleep have passed away. That means that they died. But go ask them. They'll tell you. They saw Jesus. And, and notice, Paul says, the, the, he was seen by over 500 brethren, what? At once. All at one time. It wasn't this little vision someone saw or 500 people saw, you know. Oh, they woke up and in a dream and all that. No, they were all there. They all saying, did you see that? Yeah. Did Jesus is, yeah, look, Jesus, look, he's talking. Look, he's with us. Look, look, we can touch him. Look, look. I'm sure they did all that. And 500 saw Jesus all at once. And others, this is for real, guys. You cannot disprove 500 pe people seeing Jesus alive, right? I mean, imagine. I mean, you know what? I actually have jury duty tomorrow. <laughs> I got to go to. But I was thinking, what if you were on the jury 
jury, and the lawyer had subpoenaed, subpoenaed 500 people to come to court and testify one by one. Yeah, I saw Jesus. And he said this one by one. Yeah, I saw Jesus. Yeah, yeah, just like that guy. I saw this. Oh, I saw Jesus. 500 marching through the courtroom. I mean, that would be crazy. It'd be the longest court in, in history. But can you imagine 500 people testifying one-on-one that Jesus is alive from the dead? What do you think the verdict would be? He's alive. Jesus is alive. We know that just two or three eyewitnesses would send a man to jail. But 500? No doubt. It's true. Jesus is alive. Verse 7, then Paul says, After that he was seen by James and then by the apostles. Now, James here, mentioned here, is not one of the the two James, there's two James that were disciples of Jesus, but this is the half-brother of Jesus. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's the one who wrote the book of James in our Bible. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, became a believer when he saw the resurrected Jesus. And that's amazing because we know, we find him back in Mark chapter 3, James and the family, all the brothers and sisters went to to Jesus to take him home early in the ministry. I think they're all shamed. What Jesus walking around like he's the Son of God, the Messiah? No, he's crazy. We're gonna we're gonna bring him home. He's he's shaming us. You know, it actually says in Mark three that that they thought he's out of his mind. But now, and we know James came to admit, oh, Jesus is the Son of God. And James became a believer when he saw the resurrected Jesus. Then Paul says in this verse, Jesus is seen by all the apostles. The idea is that Jesus met with all the apostles, that, that he was with them. The 40 days between his resurrection and, and, and his ascension in Acts chapter 1, Jesus was, was meeting with them, had meetings one-on-one, teaching with them. He took time to be with them. Jesus was not just seen. Jesus was not just common, oh, you shake his hand and all that. No, Jesus sat down and took the time to teach the gospel, took the time to teach him about what the prophets had said. He took the time to, to teach him about his death and resurrection. That's what Paul is saying here. I read about a pastor who told his congregation, hey, next Sunday I'm preaching on the sin of lying. So I want everyone to take the time now to read Mark chapter 17. Well, the following Sunday, the pastor asked now, when he got up before his message, he said, okay, how many of you took the time to read Mark chapter 17? And all the hands went up. Well, then he told them, there is no Mark chapter 17. It ends at Mark 16. They didn't take the time, right? So here's the thing. Jesus actually spent the time. He took the time. And all these witnesses show Jesus didn't just appear, you know. Jesus just wasn't seen, but Jesus was there with them all to make sense of it all. And this is Paul's point. The large amount of eyewitnesses show that Jesus didn't just appear, but took the time to make sense of it all. He was right there. And I was trying to picture this, but then I remember, you know, in Luke chapter 24, remember the comment that was made by the two who were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus? When they realized it was Jesus and then Jesus went, they said, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened up the scriptures to us? 
And, and so I believe it wasn't just, just the two Jesus caught and took the time of the apostles, right? He took the time to share with them what the gospel was about, his death and resurrection. And they really, when they say, wow, we've seen Jesus, it means not just see in a vision or a dream, but he was right there talking, eating with us. We, we, we could shake his hand. We could give him a hug. He was right there and we felt his teaching. Oh, the truth is the resurrection makes sense now to them. Many years ago, two skeptics, uh, G. Littleton and G. West, met in England, and all they wanted to do was destroy Christianity. They agreed to undermine two things. So G. West decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to undermine the resurrection. I'm going to find out about it all and, and show that it was false. And then uh, the, the other guy, uh, Littleton said, okay, I'm going to do it on the conversion of Paul, because Paul saw Jesus, and, and Paul preaches the resurrection of Christ. Well, sometime later when they got back together, you know what? They didn't know, but when they got back together, they realized that each of them in their research, had they got converted because of that. They got saved when they were trying to discredit. They found out that this is the truth, and the truth changed their lives. You know, I was thinking, I think it's important for us to realize that. And as we go through this chapter and the next series of messages and we really focus in on the resurrection, I think it's important for all of us to learn and to understand how important the resurrection is. I mean, most of us, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I'm forgiven, yeah, I have eternal life. But do we really grasp the power of the resurrection in our lives? Do we really grasp the hope of the resurrection in our lives? Do, does it affect our lives to where we find victory in our lives and how we live? I think it's time for us to really learn and see that there is power in the name of Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection. That there is victory in Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection. We need to really learn that and grasp that. And I hope you're getting a taste of that now, that these large eyewitnesses and everyone, Paul, listening, listing here, you know, it shows that Jesus didn't just appear. Oh, yeah, he's resurrected. Oh, Jesus, he's the resurrection. But when Jesus took time to make sense out of all, they would make sense of us, that the resurrection power is alive in us also. It's alive in us also. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's in you, you guys. Well, I don't want to let out what we're going to be talking about in the next week. Well, let's move on to number three now, our last heading, the life-changing experience. The life-changing experience. We've seen the living evidence, the large eyewitnesses, and now the life-changing experience in this truth about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. Paul writes, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So now here Paul humbly mentions himself now by writing, last of all, you know, I saw the resurrected Lord too. I, 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 I saw that. And we know how Paul saw the Lord. It was during his time of conversion when he got converted in Acts chapter 9. You can read about that. And, and Jesus came to him and appeared to him and spoke to him. And G Paul saw Jesus resurrected. Now Paul, he writes here at the end of verse 8, as by one born out of due time. He was a late-born one. He was one actually um, uh, born out of due time 
Uh, the word even can be used as a miscarriage or, 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 or a premature birth. Some, you know, a baby that wasn't born in a normal way. And Paul says, I was a, a late born. I, I, it wasn't normal now for Paul, the apostle, to come in so late in the game. Right? All the other disciples or apostles because they were with Jesus and they saw the resurrected Jesus. And that was some of the criteria. They're called by God. That was a criteria to be apostle. Paul says, I saw the resurrected Jesus. And, and so he became apostle. But I'm like the late born one. I came late in the game. I, I, I came after actually Jesus' ascension where the other 12 originally came. Yeah, before Jesus ascended to heaven. Laurie explains it this way, because Paul, he was the last, he was like a runt, untimely born. He was like the runt of the apostles, you know. And that's the way the Paul is saying, hey, I'm last of all, you know, last of all in this way. Well, he even brings that out more. Look at verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul's saying, out of all the other apostles, you know what? I'm the least. I it felt Paul felt like he was the least of uh, the apostles. He was bottom rung here, you know. He 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 was he was the, the one in the back kind. Why? Well, he did not feel worthy. He felt not worthy to be even called an apostle. And why is that? He says because I persecuted the church of God. You know, when the apostles were preaching the resurrected Christ, Paul was persecuting them for what they were saying. The apostles were preaching, Paul was persecuting. Remember Paul, yeah, before his conversion, he was going after Christians. He was, he was grabbing them, right? He was putting them in jail. It says in Acts 9-1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Paul doesn't feel worthy. Paul is the least of the apostles because of what he did in the past. Verse 10, I love this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. I'll tell you, this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. It speaks to me every time I, I, I read it. Paul is saying, I am so unworthy because of all that, what I did in the past. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am an apostle called by God. By the grace of God, I persecuted the church. But the grace of God, I'm serving the Lord in this way. Wow. Amazing here. To be a Christian and serve the Lord as an apostle, Paul saying it's only possible by the incredible grace of God. I mean, think about Paul's, what he's feeling here when he wrote this. Think about what he's thinking here. I mean, here's this man. His Hebrew name, remember, was Saul. He was, remember he wrote in, in Philippians 3 or 2, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was schooled and trained from the best rabbis. He followed the law to a key. No, no, one, no one could match up to him. He was zealous for the Jewish ways. So much so, he, he, that's why he persecuted the Christians. That's why he, he legally got papers so he can go after believers who, who believe in the 
this Jesus who resurrected from the dead, who these wayward Jews, and he grabbed them because they're heretics, and he put them in prison, and he consented to the death because they believed in this risen Messiah. And it was right in the middle of that raging persecution, Jesus came and stopped them on the road to Damascus, told them that the very God he was devoted to was the one he was fighting against. The very God that he was so locked into and so passionate about was the one he was fighting against. Oh, that's what humbled him. That's what broke him. That's why he received the Lord. And it was at that time, even after he was saved, right then, Jesus called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Saving, saved right there and called. No wonder Paul said, this is grace. Who am I? I was going after God's people, his children. Yet God saved me. God called me. No wonder Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been called. Grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So picture Paul, what he's seeing, right? This is the worst of the worst, but not only that, he went after God's children. Yet God saved him, not just saved him, called him into ministry to be one of the heads, an apostle. Well, then Paul says, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Paul saying, his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, the grace that was given to me was not for nothing. And so I labor more abundantly. I work harder than any of the other apostles. Doesn't mean he's better or anything like that. But Paul's heart was not to waste the grace that God had given him, but take full advantage of this undeserved chance to live for Jesus and nothing else. Nothing else. He put his all into it. He didn't want any of one drop of this grace not to be wasted on his own living. You know, when the kids were growing up, they used to watch um, PBS, and there was that educational cartoon, Magic School Bus. And you, I don't know if you guys remember that. And I, I liked it, too. I thought, like, I learned a lot through that, <laughs> you know, too. But I do remember the teacher, Miss Frizzle, when, whenever they were going to go into this adventure, or, or I liked when they shrink down and went into a body, you know, and you learn about the body and how it works, right? You know, remember Miss Frizzle? She'd always say, hey, it's time to take chances, make mistakes, get messy, you know? It's like, let's go, let's jump all in, hold nothing back, we're going for it. This is what Paul's saying. You know what? The grace that was given for me was not for nothing. I'm going to jump all the way in. I'm all in here. I'm going in with both feet here. He's saying, I'm going to risk more. I'm going to go farther. I'm going to last longer. I'm going to love bigger. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to do more for Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because of grace the Lord had given him. Paul could not forget what he was forgiven for. And that drove him, you guys. So even that, even though he put all this effort in, he says what? Yet it is not I, yeah? But all that I do is by that grace that is with me. Even all that I put forth, even working hard, it's all by grace. It's all by this daily grace. It's all by God giving me this chance. Paul says, you know, from his 
salvation, to his calling as apostle, to all that he does and what qualifies him as apostle, all that he is and does is not him, but you. I like what one commentator said. His task is simply a backdrop on which to display the grace of God. I love that. Oh, I love this verse. I want to be like Paul, don't you? Well, he closes here, or we close here with verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So Paul wraps this part up and he wraps it up to say, whether it was me or another apostle, what happened was we preach and you believe. And then your life changed just like me. It was the truth of the gospel. It was the word. Romans ten seventeen. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the gospel. So the last point this morning is this. Paul's life-changing experience has come by the grace that was given when he met with the resurrected Paul's life-changing experience has come by the grace that was given when he met with the resurrected Jesus. His life was completely turned around, right? When Paul says, because of grace, I got to see and experience the resurrected Lord. There's this old story of a local native on an island in the South Pacific who proudly showed his Bible to, the, to this GI during World War II. We've outgrown that sort of thing, said the soldier. Well, this native smiled back and replied, It's a good thing that we haven't. If it wasn't for this book, you'd be in our dinner by now. <laughs> Jesus changes lives. Paul is saying, Look, I'm proof. My life, the grace that saves us, the grace in which we stand, the grace that changes us, it's all the Lord and it's all because of the gospel. It's all because Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he rose again and he conquered sin and death. Let me ask you this morning, have, have you had that life-changing experience like Paul? Have you? Have you been, has, has your life flipped around, turned around? Has it? Because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Or maybe it hasn't. Maybe it's because you never come to full grips on the truth of the risen Christ. Perhaps, yeah, you know about Jesus dying for you. Perhaps you know, yeah, oh, I can go to heaven and He can forgive me. But how about your life being flipped around? Maybe because you've never fully given your life over to Him. Maybe it's because the truth or the power of the resurrection that changes life, you haven't come to grips with that. Will you let Jesus change your life? Are you tired of that sin, the consequences, the suffering, and the pain? Time has come, you guys, to stop living in the old ways, in the flesh. Time has come now to live out the truth of the resurrection. I'm going to close with this. One of the commentators was sharing how he read in this old book he had, and the writer didn't believe in, in the, the, the resurrection, right? And, and they tried to talk about that, and they tried to disprove, and they tried to say, well, this is maybe what happened. And, uh, and he wrote in imagining this disciple sitting in an upper room, and they're all sad and blue because Christ had died on the cross and was buried and, and, and all that. And so, so was, he wrote in a way like, oh, they came up with the stories, and they rallied together like, oh, this is what we're going to be like, and we're going to push the idea that, no, Jesus is still alive and all that. And, and, and we know today that Jesus 
did rise again and if that that is true and and the disciples didn't come up with some story or, or, or anything like that but i want to read to you what what he ruled because in in one sense it's inspiring to me knowing that jesus did rise again from the dead and that we need to live that life out and so as they're in upper room this is what the guy wrote he wrote that one of the disciples jumped to his feet and shouted will we not let him die the way he lived we will live the things he taught we will teach the mission he had will become our mission we will not let him die and i thought oh that's it i believe jesus christ died and rose again and he's alive today right now i believe he's alive in my heart and i want to live a life where i will not let him die yeah i want to let him live in me and this is where paul is 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 bringing in and leading up to jesus is alive by our, the grace of god and i will not let the resurrected life of jesus in me die i'm gonna let him live he's alive today and i will not be defeated and i will not let jesus die in my life because jesus is alive is he alive in your life amen he's alive so let the living Jesus change your life. And then you'll see the truth about the resurrection. Let's pray. Let's all stand up. <coughs> Lord God, as we stand here today, God, we stand for you. And we stand in the life that you've given us, those of he us here who have given their life over to Jesus. And we stand, God, because of the grace that you've given us. And we stand here because, Jesus, you are alive from the dead. And, Jesus, you are living in us right now. And we stand for in the truth, Lord, of the resurrection. And we acknowledge that, God. And as we stand before you, we worship you and we thank you. And as we stand before, we say, thank you, Lord, for the power of the salvation that you have given us in our life. And God, let us realize more and more what that means. Lord, let not the gospel become a boring trip. Let not the gospel become uh, uh, like uh, uh, something we say, oh, yeah, what, yeah, Jesus died, all that. No, let it become life to us in understanding that not just you died and you were buried and, you, and we're forgiven and you died for our sins, Lord, but you rose again from the dead. And, from, and that means we're alive in you and we, have, we can have victory in our life from sin and from, from our flesh and that we can live this life for you and not a defeated life. That we can live a life not always giving over to the flesh, but we can live a new life, Lord. And we can live with the power of the resurrection flowing through us today. And Lord, I pray over all of us and myself also to the struggles we have in sin. Lord, we even think of them right now in our minds. The habits we have, Lord. The emotions we give into. Our anger, Lord. The words we speak, God. The temptations that we give into because of our flesh, Lord. Lord, how we live in a worldly way sometimes. Unbelief and doubt, God. But Lord, we know that we can have victory over that because of your resurrection and the truth of the gospel in our life. 
So I pray over us right now in those areas, whatever that specific area is, Holy Spirit, come. Empower us today to overcome, to have victory, God, and to have a testimony of how Jesus and his life and his resurrection has freed freed us from sin and brought victory in our lives today, right now, because of the resurrection power. So I lift all of us up to you. Do that incredible work, that powerful work, and do amazing things as we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.